Okay, that's fair. All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started then. Um, well, who would like to volunteer to try and summarize what they got out of, or like the content of chapter five, which was the idea of a palace revolution? Uh, I can I can give it a go. Yeah, mug. <laughs> I uh, I might I might bleed over into chapter six a little bit, but um, that's okay. Um, it seemed like basically the writing was on the wall. Like things were getting bad at the front, things were bad in the cities. Uh, with the ruling class, you know, they're kind of just totally detached from everything, live in their own kind of like fantasy worlds. Everyone kind of knew that things were getting kind of bad, getting tense, and that essentially a revolution was pretty much inevitable, it seemed like. And so things kind of got started getting bad, and then there's kind of like some infighting that started happening between the, the ruling class. Everyone kind of like seemed to be like retreating into their own little bubbles. Um, and as like Trotsky mentions, um, I guess like he says something like shamanism uh, excels in like aristocracy, so everyone's kind of retreating to uh, it's kind of religion and superstitions to kind of like comfort them, especially the Tsar and the Tsarina with uh, Rasputin. And so they had their kind of like little clique. Other people had their own little cliques, and there's tension between them. Um, and then. The Tsar and Tsarina didn't really, you know, they weren't aware of, they were, you know, totally ignorant of the inevitable kind of boiling point that they're heading towards. Whereas the rest of the ruling class was like, yo, things are like pretty bad. We got to do something about it. Uh, the Tsar and Tsarina are totally detached. They're, you know, totally, um, just totally blindsided by Rasputin, just wrapped up in his world. So we need to do something about it because things are going to get bad for us and we need to come out on top whenever, you know, things get shitty and chaos ensues. So they all knew they had to do something, it seemed like, but no one really wanted to take the lead in doing it. And it's kind of like a real, like, almost like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man kind of situation. <laughs> like, we all know what we need to do, um, but no one's doing it. And um, What did they feel like they needed to do? Oh, get rid of the Tsar, uh, replace Nicholas. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of them had different ideas of wh what that looked like. Um, but they, they felt like they, that, uh, that situation kind of ran its course. And some, I think we're talking about, they needed to institute a constitution um, and uh, essentially replace the Tsar. And... Yeah, I don't know if that's where chapter five ends. I can't really remember, or if, or if it gets into when the czar heads south and Zarina starts, you know, mailing him or telegram messages about how bad things are getting in Petrograd and on the front and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's just a really kind of broad uh, overview, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like you said, everything's kind of going to shit, and the Tsar and the Tsarina are just kind of either they want to come down hard. Well, the Tsarina in particular wants the Tsar to like come down hard on everybody, like you know, just just shoot them all, and it's not really working. 
And so the ruling class is like, yo, these guys are these guys are screwing it up. We need to get rid of the Tsar and Tsarina and put a constitution in place. It'll be just like 1905. We can grant them this little thing. Everybody will calm down. We'll come out on top. Uh, but like I said, no one no one had the gumption basically to they were talking about assassinating the Tsar. Basically, they're they're doing a coup, a palace revolution. They're trying to do a revolution from above to prevent a revolution from below. And the the big question is. Everybody was talking about it, basically. Uh, what? Why did nobody actually do it? Is is kind of the question um, of the chapter. Uh, does anybody want to take a take a crack at that one? Why did nobody actually go through with it? Yeah, it seems like one of the theses of the book is that real revolution happens when there's no other choice for the group of people that's enacting the revolution, and so. Um, you know, Trotsky is getting into the reasons why the proletariat class felt like it had to have a re revolution in order to survive. And chapter five was about how the ruling class maybe felt similar pressures, but not to the same degree. I mean, the, he mentions over and over again how during the First World War, the ruling class was actually uh, living it up and really living a very nice lifestyle despite all the destruction that was going on even though they could see things that weren't going well for them they still had incredible day-to-day -day comforts and so the the necessity to start a revolution probably didn't feel strong to them as it did for the proletariat class that was suffering daily yeah that's that's pretty much the answer is that like however bad things were going they felt like the consequences of assassinating the Tsar would be worse than the consequences of just letting the Tsar do his thing. Because, they, like I said, they're already living it up, things are going great for them, they're, they're having like raucous parties and speculations going wild and rampant and stuff. And everybody's fearing that if they actually do the palace revolution, they have a, they have a coup d'etat, that it'll kind of unleash and stoke the fires that are already kind of starting to kindle and burn a little bit. So pretty much the answer is that while they're discontented and they know that this can't go on, nobody feels powerful enough, no class is powerful enough to stamp out the fires that are coming around. It's like... The Tsar and the Tsarina are powerless to do anything in this situation, and it's intolerable to the uh, levels of aristocracy directly below the Tsar and the Tsarina. It's intolerable to the capitalists, but they can't control it either, so they're just kind of all mad at the Tsar and the Tsarina, because those are just the people who happen to be in the most powerful situation, and they're like, well, they, those guys can't do anything. We need to get rid of those guys and get somebody in there who can do something. And they're like, yeah, we should do that. Uh, so who can do something? Nobody has any ideas. Because the the problems are just insurmountable um, for these classes. They have no class-wide program to, to answer the situation of the war, basically. Um, kind of what I got from it was that, like, they were never going to work with the lower class like the aristocracy and bureaucracy were never going to work with like the proletariat to have a revolution, like the French or I believe the French did, right? Um, to have like a bourgeois revolution. They were never going to do that 
Um, they didn't really trust them. They trusted the monarchy more. And they kind of like had this hope kind of, of like maybe one day, hopefully. And this is mostly like in chapter six where they're just like praying that the, the czar abdicates from the throne and like allows like a constitutional government because they'd rather have this happen from above um because again they don't have the teeth um they don't have the grit to have a revolution they don't trust the proletariat they don't trust the czar and they themselves are not trustworthy of each other um there's like this german germanophilism that he keeps talking about where everybody's thinking that everybody else is like a german spy um and that um you know after the 1905 revolution everybody who would have supported like terrorist actions in order to overthrow the king or the czar they're they're gone i mean i i i don't know the 1905 revolution that well but the octoberists are not as present or whatever yeah like that go on is it also first oh god uh is is, was another issue that trotsky did he mention i don't know if i'm just thinking this on my own if he said it like but one of the problems too like one of the reasons they they couldn't do a bourgeois revolution is yeah like you said they they didn't work they weren't working with the proletariat it was one of the reasons because they are also there there just wasn't that many uh, of the bourgeois class in Russia like because they skipped so many stages of development or skipped over rather yeah pretty much the the bourgeoisie represented in Russia was like we're talking like lawyers and doctors kind of level of petty bourgeois because all of the big owners of the huge industrial factories in Petrograd, it's all foreign capital or it's been financed by foreign capital and it's just kind of run locally. So it's just run by like your small time, like shop level supervisors, which shop level in like factories of a thousand people, you know, but still like the petty bourgeoisie in Russia tends to just be like your lawyers and doctors and things. They're not like really powerful industrial magnates or anything like that. But yeah, I like uh, Chris bringing up the Germanophilism. It's it's an amusing theme throughout the revolution. Everybody is a German spy, all of them. The Tsar is a German spy. The Tsarina is a German spy. Everybody's trying to, like, obviously they start accusing Lenin of being a German spy and the Bolsheviks of being a German spy. And then the people who are making those accusations afterwards in the Russian Civil War tend to have gotten support from, you guessed it, the Germans. So it's like everybody wound up being a German spy in the end. Just kind of find that thread through the whole thing to be pretty amusing. It's just kind of the completely meaningless insult that they'll throw around. But uh, yeah, so chapter five kind of ends. Yeah, go on. Um. Yeah, I was going to say quickly that the German Germanophilism was like, I think he says at one point a 
sort of reaction or like um yeah kind of like a reaction of like them not really knowing what to do and so they're just like you know speculously blaming one another when like their backs pinned against the wall they kind of just blame everybody of being german spies because they don't really have a program or um a theory to back up their their claims yeah that's kind of the same way they retreat back into like mysticism and spiritualism and stuff so while nobody actually had the sorry did you want to say something Yeah, sorry, were you saying that some people did end up being Russian spy, uh, German spies, or no one did? Or well, after the fact, did? after the Bolsheviks actually conquered power, and when the Russian Civil War broke out, a lot of the people who were accusing the Russians of being German spies will wind up receiving military support from Germany in their war against the Bolsheviks, which is kind of ironic, because they're like, oh, you guys were being funded by the Germans, but now they are the ones being funded by the Germans against the Bolsheviks. And uh, we'll read a book by Jean Reed, because he was actually present during the October Revolution, and he was an American socialist, and so he was able to kind of get in with, like, dinners and stuff with some of, like, the, the higher-class people, and he asks them point blank. He's like, would you rather Germany invade and win in Russia or would you rather the Bolsheviks take over? And everybody's like, once he presses them on the point, everybody's like, oh, yeah, we'd rather Germany win. We don't want the Bolsheviks. We'd rather Germany. So it, it winds up being a pretty amusing accusation. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. But, uh, so, yeah, everybody kind of has this idea that if they assassinate... No, sorry, nobody has the gumption to go through and assassinate the Tsar. But someone does have the gumption to go forth and assassinate Rasputin. And that's kind of interesting. And it shows, I think, on a micro scale what would have happened if the Tsar had been assassinated. And so after they kill Rasputin, the, the thinking is that all of the ills and failings of the Tsar are stemming from Rasputin, because Rasputin has this huge sway over the Tsar's circle. If we just get rid of Rasputin, then maybe the Tsar will, you know, have better ideas or something. Uh, so they kill Rasputin, and then basically the Tsar and the Tsarina just, like, double down on everything, and anybody that Rasputin liked, he just, they all get promoted to higher positions, and all of the clique that surrounded Rasputin is just, like, instantly super elevated in power and stature and stuff, so... It, like assassinating the Tsar kind of would have done the same thing, where things would have might have fallen to the Tsarina, and then uh, however the secession would have worked, it would have fallen within that Rasputin clique, since those were the people highest and closest to the levels of power. So it it would have kind of been the same sort of thing, unless they literally killed all of those people, in which case it really would have ignited things a little bit more because that's a shitload of people to have killed like that, you know. So that's just kind of interesting. Uh, so chapter 5 was about that question. Chapter 6, Trotsky actually starts moving into a bit more of a narrative history, and he feels obligated, now that we've dedicated so much time talking about the Tsar and the Tsarina, to actually give us a sketch of how the downfall happened, which was pretty amusing, actually. Does anybody want to try and give a summary sketch of chapter 6? Uh, I can I can go again unless someone else wants to. 
You're a brave mug. I congratulate you. All right. Um, so, yeah, I'll do a really, once again, broad overview. Um, my recall is not that great. Let's see. So, I think kind of picking up where I left off earlier, the Tsar, he, he heads south. Uh, he leads, leaves Petrograd, goes down there. I don't remember exactly why. Probably just like vacay or something. Uh, Zarian is back in Petrograd. Um, things start to get a little, you know, more tense. Uh, the the revolutionaries are getting, you know, more uh, crystallized. Uh, the kind of the revolutionary force, and so people are um, in Petrograd in the cities striking, uh, agitating, whatnot, and then. Generals on the front are starting to turn their uh, their regiments back towards Petrograd, and the Tsarina is kind of telegramming the Tsar, saying like, "Yo, things are getting bad." He, in response, is just like, "It's a beautiful day down here. Hope it's great up there too." Just really like mundane observations of of the days, not really taking anything seriously. Seemingly unworried about the the kind of growing discontent back in Petrograd, and then he starts to eventually turns back. I think uh, the head of the Duma. I, I think that's who it is. The Radzinko something, our man. He finally convinces Czar that like no things are really bad. You need to get back there. The the revolution is in, you know going to happen unless you do something so he he decides to take a train back up towards petrograd but along the way he's stopped by some rail workers i forget the name of the city stopped there they won't let him uh, move forward so there's revolutionaries already in other cities things are getting like i said even increasingly worse in petrograd so the czar people are trying to get him to abdicate the throne he's reluctant but after some pressuring Basically, he's like, fine, I'll, uh, I'll advocate to, to my son. But then when he sends that telegram, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa no, 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 actually, don't send that. Because uh, I, I forget something happens where he's like, he thinks he can get some more leverage, so like, they don't send that. He's like, no, I'll advocate to my brother and sends that telegram. But I think it's too late or Radazinko just doesn't send it at all because he's like, this is bullshit. Uh, this guy, like, he's, he's already lost, so I'm not going to send this. And basically, back in Petrograd, they've already kind of, like, uh, formally arrested uh, the Tsar. And the... I forget who it is that takes over. Someone from the Duma, I think, takes uh, power. Or they're just still trying to figure out who who can take power in that moment while they kind of figure out what to do with the czar. Um, that's where I start to lose, for lack of a better phrase, my train of thought uh, about the situation. I mean, more or less, yeah. I don't know. Did that, were those the main beats? They're also on strike, but, you know, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly. kind of amusing, really, because, like you <laughs> said, the czar is kind of, like, vacillating between, okay, I'll abdicate, and then he's, like, he gets some more news, or he thinks about it, and he's like, nah, I think it'll be better if I wait, or he changes the terms of his abdication, and he's just, like, so out of the, like, he doesn't know what's going on. 
And part of where, where he's driving, where he thinks he has bargaining power, is like you said, there's all these disruptions and strikes and things like that in Petrograd. He's he's sending back or, or like ordering these military regiments back, companies. He's like, look, go put down the strikes. We're going to send, send as many armies as you need, take them back from the front and go back to Petrograd, put this shit down. And the the soldiers get back there and they're just like not reliable and they're like joining with the strikers because they're like yeah this is bullshit guys and that's that's he's like we need to find some reliable troops somewhere and that's kind of what the whole problem is is that the whole front is erupting the whole back is erupting nothing's he he doesn't have control there's no more control and he's just ignorant to that fact and like he said at a certain point, he's trying to abdicate, and it's like, well, sorry, but back in Petrograd, they're already forming a provisional government. They don't, they've already abdicated you for you, basically. Um, it's kind of amusing. At one point, Trotsky mentions that all of the, the generals along the front are literally talking to each other. They're like, all right, do we still support the Tsar? Are we going to, like, do a coup or whatever? And then the different generals are like, uh, I'm not going to be the first one to answer that. I'll give you my answer after everybody else has answered. <laughs> and, like, they're putting conditions on what their answer is going to be. And it's, like, really funny because the generals are, like, playing chicken with the idea of not going first to say that they don't support the Tsar anymore. Um, which I find to be kind of amusing, especially the way Trotsky presents it. Um... Yeah, that part, it was funny. And then Trotsky also says that all these people were really eager to, at that point, basically sign off from the Tsar's regime and join an army. Was he being sarcastic, or did a lot of these military generals and higher-ups so in the military So they didn't join the Red Army. What the they Red were army. trying to do was they were trying to hook their horses to the winning cart, basically. They were trying to determine, is the Tsar going to win this struggle between the rising provisional government, which is not at this point the Soviet government. We'll get into that in a, in a couple of chapters. Basically, this chapter, Trotsky is just giving the overview of the downfall of the monarchy without really providing all the context for these events. He's going to do that in the next couple of chapters. But the rising provisional government is not the Soviet government. It, it's the kind of bourgeois' last attempt at trying to save, quote-unquote, save Russia. So the generals are not debating between hooking their horse to the rising Soviets. They're trying to debate, are they going to join with the Tsar, or are they going to join with this new provisional government, which is kind of led by your nascent Russian bourgeoisie. They don't want to declare for the Tsar and then kind of be ruled on the wrong side of the quote-unquote revolution. And they don't want to declare against the Tsar just in case that the Tsar does wind up winning the struggle. They don't really know who's coming out on top, so they're being like, hesitant and they do wind up hooking their horse to the the provisional government once it winds up that it's clearly this is the one that's going to be successful and just kind of because of the the confusion that the workers kind of have about the the revolution they they're uh, like because the war really disoriented everybody and there's no strong revolutionary party uh i think trotsky kind of talked about how the bolshevik party got broken up during the war they haven't really reformed themselves just yet lenin is still abroad things like that the workers are are just kind of like you know they're they're red you know they're they're going for the socialism and stuff like that but uh, they're kind of being deceived by the bourgeoisie who are also saying, oh yeah, we're socialists, we just have to, to do it this way, you know? Because you also have to keep in mind that the socialists over in Germany are supporting the war too. So it's like, 
they can say they're socialists and still kind of be honest about that fact when the socialists in Germany are also doing the war, you know? So the the quote-unquote socialists that the military people wind up hooking their horses to are like the the bourgeoisie in, in Russia. So he's uh, Trotsky's being kind of sarcastic when he says that, but they do really kind of fly the red flag in a literal sense to just kind of protect their own self, basically. But yeah, so a little ways... Yeah, sorry. Uh, but yeah, a little ways down in the chapter, I'd say gotcha. two-thirds of the way, something like that, Trotsky kind of makes the interesting historical parallel between the Romanov dynasty and the French royal pair from the, the French Revolution. And I think that's... I Frankly, I'm not well-studied on that French Revolution, Marie Antoinette and all that, but it's it's pretty interesting and compelling that he, he makes this comparison and kind of talks about the role of personality in history. And I think this whole section is a pretty fascinating study in the importance or unimportance of individuality in shaping historical events or the way historical events impress themselves on a personality. I don't know if everybody, uh, or yeah, let's hear some people's thoughts on that, that kind of section, you know? Yeah. I really like that bit too. Like, it seemed like he's making a strong case for like a, a materialist analysis of history. Kind of saying like you can you know you can view those two events you know, from the perspective of the emotional state of like the czar and the king, like draw conclusions there. But like in reality, the situation was that they were both just kind of like these physical manifestations along this long line of conditions that were like set in motion by past contradictions kind of leading their way to this inevitable boiling point that they both kind of experience. They both just like so happen to be at those boiling points and their individual psyches were kind of shaped by those conditions in those moments of tension. And that's why they're so similar. It's not, they're not similar because they're like um, some mysterious force guiding their personality and, and, and their psyches and kind of choosing them for those moments. Um, it's, yeah, I thought it was, I don't know if that's a right way to look at it, but I thought it yeah. was a strong case for like a materialist analysis. I felt the same. I felt like this was to me, one of the most interesting parts of the book because a lot of history is spoken to like about the, the leader, about personalities and ideology, about, you know, particularly like particular rulers particular um like uh people of intelligentsia like john locks and plato's and all that when he takes a like mug said a materialist lens where it's like was that important not really in reality what was most important to the outcome of the revolution was the conditions the material conditions that um that was set at this time whether or not it was you know nicolas or his father um alex either way either though alex was a far better ruler he would have had to face the same pressure and would have gone through hypothetically speaking 
gone through the same phases that his son had. It's just due to the conditions that he was born in, he ended up being the way that he was. And, you know, and history seems to have repeated itself. Um, <clears throat> so I really like this because it, it's not just well written, but it's like very different than what most histor his historians focus on, on like the personalities and everything like that, where he's sort of like breaking it down as this isn't personalities. I think he said get crushed under the weight of um, of the pressure of materialist conditions. I yeah, I think the like analogy you're talking about analogy. talks about like, you know, if you have a, a cube made out of metal or a sphere made out of metal, they're both going to get smashed if you drop a steam hammer on them, you know? And that's the equivalent of like the historical events of the Russian Revolution are like a steam hammer. And it didn't really matter who the person was there. They were going to get smashed. And I like that you bring up the, the previous czar, Alex, uh, and Trotsky mentions, like, you know, what would have happened if it had just been a different czar in place instead of Tsar Nicholas? And it's like, well, you know, uh, the fact that it's a different person doesn't change the fact that all of these material contradictions are in place and it there's no better program to put in place. There's nothing you can do to maneuver your way out of the situation that the war is decimating your country, the peasants are unhappy with the war, the workers are unhappy with the war. What program could a better leader have possibly put in place? And that's kind of the point, is that it's not about individual leaders or whatever. It's about classes and class programs that really shape history. And the quote-unquote best leaders are simply the ones that are the best representative of the class at that time, whatever that class happens to be, if it's the working class or the bourgeois class or whatever. Whoever can enunciate... The, the program and stick to and adhere to the program of the class the best it tends to be the the leader and yeah there's there's a couple little lines in here that i that i like uh and i'm reading backwards into them a very modern uh take here he talks about how delusional these people are like alexandra the, the Tsarina is writing things like, I feel a liveliness of spirit. and Something tells me that we shall soon be happy and safe. And Trotsky writes, they're seeing rainbow dreams while they drown, which I think is a very powerful writing. Uh, but he says, too, that both of these leaders, these kings and the Tsar, are going toward the abyss with the crown pushed down over their eyes. And he's like, but would it really be easier to go toward the abyss, which you can't escape anyway with your eyes open? And it's like, you know climate change you know how do you feel about that it's like feels like we're going to the abyss maybe we should just keep the crown pushed down over the eyes uh not not really but it's just kind of sort of a modern uh application of the idea of we're kind of headed toward that abyss that it's like some people are just you know don't look up that whole thing right or you can talk about how like crazy you know the new sort of billionaires and millionaires, Elon Musk and isn't Elon Musk and what's his name, Mark Zuckerberg, planning to like box for MMA or like they're considering it? Just sort of like how, like before when classes were, when you know, 
classes were like somewhat regular we're like you know there was this idea of like oh we're progressing forward and like everything is good even though everything was not good now we're sort of hitting the stage where it's like you know there's clearly problems that are we are going to face <clears throat> whether it be climate change whether it be financial crisis ongoing wars and people are just sort of going to delusions um left and right um but you can clear clearly see it with like the ruling class yeah it's like when the, at this the moment, bourgeoisie was an emerging like. class they they had a program to answer the problems of feudalism you know they they wanted the peasantry they supported the peasantry in their demands for the land because the at the time the, the capitalists had no no problems with that really because they were an urban class. They were the bourgeoisie because they lived in the bergs. They were the burgers, the bourgeois, where it all comes from. So they were like, yeah, we need to give the, the land to the peasants. It makes sense. And the peasants were down with that. So they, they had a program that actually made sense at the time. They were a progressive force. But now they don't they don't really have any answers. I mean, now speaking, even in terms of 1917, the, the emerging capitalist class was still interested in continuing the war, because as we've pointed out, they're kind of living fat and happy off of these war profits, so they don't really have an answer to stopping the war, because they don't want to stop the war. So they're not a progressive force in that respect. They have no answer to offer the people of the country, and in the, in the modern times, too, they really don't have an answer to offer anybody as far as climate change is concerned, because they're not, not concerned about stopping it. They're still making fat money off of oil and things like that, so they don't have any motivation to stop the climate apocalypse going on. It's it's going to have to be an emergent uh, working-class insurrection that's going to have to, just like in 1917, solving the problem of the war. They had to do it themselves. We'll have to solve the climate crisis on our own, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. Yeah, I feel like you got a bunch of these like Rasputins popping up today too that the capitalist class is kind of focusing on like the Jordan Petersons and stuff of the world and kind of like retreating to those little bubbles that are kind of like mystic in a way as a way to kind of uh, I don't know, ease their attentions and just divert their attention and kind of uh, explain their way out of things, explain their way out of responsibilities. Yeah, I like the the idea of like these sort of speculations are sort of a way to like delegitimize any sort of um proletariat like socialist thinking that is arising from these contradictions. Cuz like if it goes against, you know, your class interest, you're not going to agree with them. And so you're going to have to come to far out, you know, delusions that, you know, <laughs> only so little people can can imagine are true. Yeah. And uh, um, I, I think Trotsky himself yeah. kind of demonstrates the, the importance of like, like understanding your history because it it repeats like he's talking about these these comparisons between the the French king and the the Russian czar and it's like if you had been well studied in in the French revolution and 
could recognize these things. You could be like, oh, this is happening because X, Y, Z. And you would know ahead of time without having to like rediscover all of this all over again because you've seen it happen before, basically. And so now we're kind of like making these these modern analogies to it and just being like, oh, you know, this is what's going on here. I've, you know, I've read about this before. Um, but I think you do have to be a little careful with that. And I think Trotsky offers us a good example of that himself, where near the end of the chapter, he's trying to paint in Britain. There is, a, you know, Prime Minister MacDonald. Uh, he's like, oh, you know, this guy is doing he's preparing the shocks no less successfully than Nicholas II did. And so he's he's trying to basically set it up like, you know, Britain's about to have their great fall, too. And McDonald is the guy who's setting all this stuff up. And it's like, OK, well, you know, that one didn't really pan out that way. So maybe he misread that situation a little bit. So it's 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 good to be able to, like, draw historical parallels and analogies. But it's also important to be careful with it and not try too hard to see the past in the present. Like, make sure that it actually... Uh, conforms to the same kind of trends and patterns. I think it's kind of amusing that Trotsky is able to offer us a, a failed example of that application of that analysis, because obviously he's wrong. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if anybody else had any thoughts on these, we can hear those now, but otherwise I was thinking of just doing two more chapters for next week. They seem to be pretty much about the same length, and the next two chapters are going to deal with the, the February Revolution in 1917, so we'll get a lot more context for the things going on in Chapter 6. Uh, I got a question. Um... I kind of brought this up like last time I was on this and I just can't wrap my head around like uh, or I can't track some of the stuff happening around the, the Duma and it, specifically like the liberals. I think Trotsky mentions them a few times in these chapters and their kind of uh, perspective on what's happening. And I, for some reason I can't wrap my head around uh what their position is or like how they're operating in all this. Uh, and I feel really dumb for not understanding it, but is there a I way to like same. quickly, briefly explain? I, I think your confusion is valid um, because the general the confusion makeup was I also present at the time, right? Like the Duma itself was established as a like consultative body to the czar. And so like now that the czar, which it was an elected position, right? The Bolsheviks had gotten people elected to the Duma. So it was, something that was elected by popular vote but it only ever had consultative power so like the duma itself after the czar is gone it's just kind of like okay what are we we were here for the czar to consult and we were voted in by popular does that mean we take the power now like it's it's up in the air yeah it's it's confusing because it was confused at the time as well it it was like okay so is this the duma in charge now you know we had a popular mandate we were voted in but the czar is gone we were voted in to be consultants for the czar so did we lose our power too and they're they're kind of floating in the air the whole time too they they wind up being this like 
this like third pillar almost. There's the provisional government that arises. There's the Soviets, and then there's just kind of like the Duma, who's just kind of suspended in air because they were originally attached to the Tsar, and he's kind of been overthrown now. So their role is ambiguous. So it is hard to kind of understand where their role is because it's it wasn't really clear to them at the time either. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, confused because it was confusing. And yeah, I do remember Trotsky saying something like the Tsar already fooled them once in 1905 with the creation of the Duma when considering like doing something similar in 1917. Like, yeah, so right. yeah, so it was, it was meant, it was created to be, yeah, yeah kind of confusing. It's, it's a smokescreen, you know, anyway, like it's there to which, make. Doesn't really. Yeah, it's there to make them think yeah, that they have fine. some kind it's of fine. popular power, and so now that a revolution <laughs> where popular yeah, power yeah. is emerging is happening, yeah. it's it's even more confusing. Because then you have like real sources of popular power through through the Soviets and even to an extent the provisional government. So then it's like, okay, what what's the Duma <laughs> doing here? The Duma doesn't even really know. I'll I'll say that the Duma has an the absolutely hilarious skin crystal clear. to itself. They they tried. I just it's, it's good stuff. You know, we'll get to it. No spoilers. I bet. Cool. Yeah, well, I can feel it. Else has any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I had any other questions for next week, which will cover the February Revolution. Cool, well, yeah, thanks everybody for showing up. Looking forward to seeing everybody again. Sick. Take care. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, y'all. Adios. Yeah. Later, y'all.